You may be seated. Good morning. Happy uh, Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday, and uh, good to be with you as we look into this great Passion Week where our Savior Jesus Christ died for us on that cross on Friday. I'm Dave Mitchell. Good to be with you this morning, and we welcome you in terms of opening the Bible that is in the chair rack in front of you, the Bible that is in your phone, your iPad, or the Bible that you brought that maybe is big, thick-looking look, look, one like this one here in my hand. I'd like for you to take also a look at the outline that we have for you that's in the bulletin. I'd like to reference that just at the beginning as we understand the passage that we're going to be looking at today. We're in the book of Mark. We've been covering the book of Mark uh, for a couple of years, it seems like. And uh, so it's, a, it's only like 16 chapters, but we've made it stretched out for a long time. We are now in Mark chapter 15, and so we encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, we'd like to look at today. And let me just set the scene for what we're examining. This is, of course, Palm Sunday. It was on Friday that the scene that I'm about to read takes place. It's the uh, trial of Jesus Christ. He has been brought before the religious leaders. He is now being brought before the civil or civic leaders that are in charge, the Roman leaders of the land. Uh, that was the nation of Israel. Rome had control over the property. Rome had control over the people, over their finances, and they were rebelling against that. And so we're going to look at the first 15 verses of Mark chapter 15. I'd like to read them, make some comments, and then go a little bit deeper and bring some application, maybe in a little bit different twist than we're normally used to in a passage like this. But I want to encourage you as I read through the passage on the back side, the reality is that when Jesus was under trial, there were actually six trials that he went through. Uh, there were the trials by the religious leaders, there were trials by the civic leaders, and this is the trial, the three trials that we're going to look at are taking place under Pilate. And I want to make a couple of observations as we go through it. So let me read the text. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Early in the morning. Now, early in the morning, you can look on the back side of the outline if you'd like to dig a little bit deeper. And you can see on there some of the times that uh, I didn't put those on there. And there's going to be people who are going to disagree with those times as to the various trials that were taking place. They're all bundled together here. And this is on the Friday. They're preparing for the Passover, for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread that's taking place. They want to hurry up and get Jesus crucified so they can go and do the religious duties of the Passover. And so Mark chapter 15 begins the civil trial, the first of the three civil trials that are about to take place. So early in the morning, as you can see some of the times that are there, some people believe it might have been 6 a.m., it says the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the whole council... So we're talking about all the religious leaders that are taking place. They are in control of the situation at this time. So they held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now the reason they delivered him to Pilate is because the Jewish leaders could not crucify Jesus. Only the Roman leader could do that. So they have to go to the man that they think can convince, be convinced that Jesus should be crucified. So Pilate questioned him. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, it is as you say. Jesus is in agreement with that. He has no argument with that. I am a king. Now John describes this conversation a little bit differently because he talks about, I'm not the king of this world. I am of another world, a spiritual world, a heavenly kingdom that he wanted to bring here on earth. As he prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's prayed earlier on in his life. 
And so he is a king, but not the kind of king they were looking for, especially on Palm Sunday. Then the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus uh, made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now, if you read some of the other passages, like in Luke and John, you can see actually Pilate had a very private conversation with Jesus. And Jesus sort of broke down the facts of why he is here and what he's all about. You can read those. But this concludes verse 5, the first of the three civil trials. Now, between verse 5 and verse 6, Jesus is removed from Pilate and goes to see Herod because Pilate recognized that Jesus is a Galilean, so the proper jurisdiction should be with Herod. So Herod then has this conversation with Jesus that's not recorded by Mark, but Herod says, man, I've been looking forward to meeting you. I've heard about all your miracles. You're an amazing individual. I want to see some tricks from you as well. So Herod is in on the act, but Herod doesn't really pass any real judgment. He's just in for the personal entertainment of himself. So that happens between verse 5 and verse 6. That is the second civil trial. Then we come to the third civil trial that now is in verse 6. So a passage of time has occurred as Jesus is moving back and forth. And so it says, Now at the feast he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. There's no law about this that is recorded, but there was the tradition that in this Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Passover that is now to take place, that they would sometimes bring someone else who would take the penalty of the crime that this person has been tried for. So this is what Pilate is trying to move away from crucifying Jesus. So he suggests an alternative plan that is Barabbas. So the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist, and he had committed murder in the insurrection. So Barabbas was a known felon. He is a murderer. We're told he is a robber. Probably he was those who were trying to rebel against Roman rule, so he probably killed people in the process of trying to achieve that, and so they have brought him before the pilot. And the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered and said to them, saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest had handed Jesus him over because of envy. Pilate's not being swayed that this is some legit trial. Pilate knows that these chief priests, the Sanhedrin, Pharisees, they're angling to maintain their power base. They see the people wanting to follow this miracle worker of Christ who is healing people, who is saving people, who is changing people's lives for the better, and they don't want any part of that. They don't want to give up what they have. So Pilate says, man, you guys are very envious leaders. What kind of leaders are you? So he really mocks them. Here's your king. Here's your king. You want to crucify your king. So he's mocking them and saying some of these things. In verse 9, so again, Pilate answered them, said, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? 
You want to kill your own king? He mockingly, I think, says to them. And they, of course, shout back, crucify him. Now, the Jews would be known to stone people, but they could not crucify people. That was the Roman way. So Pilate has the power to bring Jesus to a cross and crucify him. They know that. They're leveraging everything they can to get this Jesus crucified. And so then Pilate says in verse 14, Why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted all the more, Crucify him. Well, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate, ever the politician, released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. That's the third trial. That's the final verdict. Jesus is now to be crucified. So we're looking at Friday. Somewhere in the course of that Friday day, Jesus has now been tried six times. And what I'd like to do is to twist this around and recognize that really what's going on here is that Jesus is not really the one that's on trial. If you take a big step back and see the big global picture of all that God has ever planned to do since the Garden of Eden, when God had a plan to rescue mankind from sinfulness, he's always had a plan to have a rescuer come. So here's Jesus to be crucified, and it looks like we're always looking through the lens of the crowd, the Pharisees, even Barabbas or Pilate, and we're looking at Jesus as this innocent victim, and so we should prove that he is innocent. I like to twist it and say, let's look instead through the eyes of Jesus and what Jesus sees in those who are bringing these charges against him. Because I want to give us hope. Because as I see this passage and more thought about this, there are actually four classifications of people in this passage that Jesus is looking at, that Jesus is dying for, that Jesus would love to forgive that Jesus would love to transform their lives. I want to give us all hope because all of us probably, I know I do, have people that meet each of these classifications, and I want to have a hope that God is still in the business of changing lives. So let's look at group number one. Look through the eyes of Jesus of the religious leaders. The chief priests, the Pharisees, that made up the Sanhedrin, the, the power base, the Supreme Court, the president, the legislators, those who control Jewish lives. They're rebelling against this king of the Jews. Why? Well, Pilate recognized some of the qualities. These religious leaders do not want to lose their power base. But the craziness is that they know the scriptures. They know what the Messiah was going to do. On the backside, I gave you a number of passages that really shows the passages that they knew, they knew these things. They would memorize great portions of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They knew this stuff. They knew Isaiah. Jesus even said, Isaiah 61 is about me. He read that to them. And they could have read Isaiah 53, that he's going to be a suffering Savior, a suffering Messiah. He's not going to speak back when spoken to at the trial. They knew all this. What's so aggravating is to have religious people who know biblical truth, whose hearts are so hardened to the reality of what Jesus offers them. So they resist the truth, and 
they fear losing their power base. They're envious of Jesus. They don't want to lose what they have. So what do we do with religious leaders like this? Here are some of the things that I think about that Scripture teaches us. That it takes divine intervention to reach people who have biblical knowledge, who maybe grew up in a Christian home, who grew up in a church like Calvary Church, who then turn from it, having known all these things, they resist the truth, and it's hard to win them back. And Jesus came for them. Through the eyes of Jesus, they need him. And so what we do is we turn to the Lord and we bring the love and the grace that is in our heart. Let me give you an Old Testament biblical illustration. On the screen, here's this great passage from uh, 2 Chronicles 33. King Manasseh, this is King Manasseh here. He grew up in a what we would call today a Christian home. His father Hezekiah was one of the most righteous kings that were ruled upon the earth. So he grew up in a home where Hezekiah walked with God. And then Manasseh turned from that. Here's what this passage says when he became king. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, and they paid no attention. That, that is what is frustrating about these religious leaders with Jesus. They paid no attention to biblical truth that they knew. And so therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody that we know that is rebelling against God should be bound with chains and with hooks. That's not the application. But notice what God does. And when he was in distress, Manasseh, he entreated the Lord as God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved. God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. That's what we want. That's what Jesus came to this world to accomplish. He came to die for those religious leaders who yelled, crucify him. He came to die for those of us who grew up in a Christian context, who know biblical truth and rebel against it. And God's still in the business of doing that. About a month uh, or a month and a half ago, Carolyn Griffith invited me to a breakfast down here in Costa Mesa, and I heard this man speak. It was outstanding. Mark, Mark Whitaker. You may not know Mark Whitaker, but how many of you know Matt Damon? Okay. Oh, we love Matt Damon, of course. Matt Damon was in a movie called The Informant. The Informant was this man right here, Mark Whitaker. Mark Whitaker rose up as a 30-year-old man to be one of the highest-ranking leaders, presidents of ADM. Now, ADM makes the products that go in the food products that we buy. It's a $30 billion business with 30,000 employees. Huge. So Mark Whitaker rises up. He doesn't walk with God, although his wife was a believer, and Mark would go to church every Sunday. Mark would say, if you asked me if I was a Christian, I would say, yes, I'm a Christian. I go to church every Sunday. My wife, she's been a believer in Jesus Christ since she was age 13. Her name is Ginger. Well, Mark Whitaker rose up through the ranks, and he realized how ADM did business. They would collude with other companies who did similar types of products, and they would fix the prices. And so that's how they made a lot of money. Well, one day, Ginger asked Mark, Mark, you don't seem to be very happy. What's the problem? He said, I discovered that how we do business at ADM is that 
we fix the prices, and it's kind of a scam, but it's the way we make a lot of money around the world. And she said, is, is that legal? And he said, well, no, it's not, but everybody's doing it. And so Ginger says, well, in the course of time, I think we should go to the FBI and tell them about this. He says, well, if I go to the FBI, they're going to put me in prison. That's okay. <laughs> I'd, rather you, I'd rather you be a changed man than live this kind of life. She says, well, I'm not going to go to the FBI. And she said, yes, you are. And she said, why is that? Because I already made an appointment for you. <laughs> so she took him to the FBI. And he told the story of this price fixing that was going on. So fast forward for the next two years, Mark became an informant. He wore a wire in all the meetings so they could record and give evidence as to the wrongdoing of this company. And so after two years, he got immunity, but he still wasn't finished with his greed because after they had done all the informing, he said, I think ADM still owes me nine and a half million dollars. So he somehow weaseled nine and a half million dollars out of ADM for his own, for his own keeping and he's doing this while he's in the custody of the FBI. Well, the FBI finds out about this $9.5 million, and they tend to frown on such things. And so instead of getting something like six months in jail, he, was he went to prison for nine years in a federal prison in Mississippi. He said, it was the year before I went to prison that a man from a company, from an organization called CBMC came and visited with me because Mark had said I tried to commit suicide several times. He was so unhappy. Ginger kept telling him, Mark, you need God in your life. You need God in your life. But Mark wouldn't listen. He'd go to church and sit where we sit, but he wouldn't listen. And finally, the CBMC came, and every week he would spend time with him. Then he went to prison. He met a fellow by the name of Chuck Olson. Chuck Olson from the Nixon era who also went to prison for wrongdoing. It was in prison where Mark got down on his knees and confessed his sins and prayed to receive Christ as his Savior. And then he became a mentor to other disciples, I mean to other disciples, to other prisoners who wanted to know Jesus. He taught them how to read. He mentored men. He says, I was making $20 a month in prison, but I was happier making $20 a month than I was making millions for ADM. At age 49, he was finally released from, released from prison and got...
was used of appealing for more money. If only I had more money. If
I love, I love John and Julie, our, I affectionately call them our ponytail missionary. He's the only one. So I love this guy, this couple just gave their lives to the Lord. And they weren't being blown around by how things go for them, a terrible accident and some of the hardships of Molly and sickness and things like that. Faithful, faithful. Encouraging those in the crowd to remain faithful. Then we have Pilate, this indifferent, agnostic man who heard the claims of Christ, probably saw some of the miracles of Christ, where Christ was standing literally right in front of him and all Pilate wanted to do was to get him out of his way. There's so many people that are like Pilate that don't really have a strong opinion about Jesus either way. He's a good man. Sure, I don't have an ax to grind with him, but I just don't care. They live sort of that agnostic where I just don't, don't really know. I don't want to really look into it. I don't want to learn more about it. And we want to reach out to people who are like Pilate. When Jesus comes right before them, we want them to see Jesus. Not the church, not religious things, but Jesus. So I encourage us that we need to pray for them, that the blindness to who Jesus is, that Jesus is standing literally right in front of G the Pilate, and he couldn't see who Christ is and remains today as a resurrected Lord. This great passage, 2 Corinthians says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they remain agnostic, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And I maintain that we should reveal the glory of Christ in our lives, that they can see who Christ is and what he does for us. Because Christ died for the pilots of the world, for the agnostics, for those who are indifferent and apathetic to the claims of Christ. And we don't have to go to Mali to do that. We've got neighbors, each one reach one, that we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. One of the great stories I heard just a week ago to give me hope, I was meeting with some professors at Biola University, and I met with a man who was uh, from Nigeria. He was born in Nigeria, grew up with agnostic parents who didn't really have a faith of any kind. And in his high school years, began to think there's something more to life, and he went to a Mormon church and began to attend there, and sort of like the structure and some of the design of the kinds of things that they did. And then he heard a voice in his head. He says, don't stay here. You're not hearing the full truth. So he left the Mormon church. Then he had a neighbor friend who went to a Baptist church down the street. He said, I don't want to go to a Baptist church. I'm not into Baptist stuff. So the neighbor friend said, well, here's a Bible. Would you just read the Bible and let it speak to you? So he says, okay. So he started reading the Gospel of Matthew. He read all through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he says, I'm beginning to like this Jesus. There's something special about him. And then he says, I became a Christian. I asked him, he said, you mean all by yourself you became a Christian? Didn't you need like the four spiritual laws or a, you know, a church or some Christian to tell you? No. I read what Jesus said. I read what he claimed. I saw the evidence that it was true. I read it for myself and I believed it. And I trusted in Christ as my Savior all by myself. I said, well, God, you can do miracles. Sometimes Jesus' glory is revealed even through the Word of God. If we just get the Word into people's hands, 
they can see the relevance of who Christ is. And then finally, we have Barabbas. Barabbas is a known sinner. That's why evangelism in prisons is usually pretty effective. You don't have to convince people that they're sinners. Well, Barabbas is this guy that is a murderer, a robber, and he knows probably in his own mind's eye, I don't know what, I don't know his heart. He didn't testify through this. But my guess is he is a known sinner. He knows he deserves death. But the beautiful thing about Barabbas is that Jesus took his place and died for Barabbas. Died for him. Galatians puts it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. A curse for Barabbas. Because everyone who's hung on the cross is accursed. We also read this, that we want Barabbas and people like him who are known sinners, who have done terrible things with their lives, who deserve prison, who deserve punishment, that they should repent and begin performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That is our desire. That is our prayer. That's our encouragement. That whatever the class of people that we have around us, who do we identify? The religious leaders that grew up in the context of biblical truth and know the truth but resist it, maybe out of envy. I don't want to lose what I have. Or perhaps there are those who are in the crowd that in the fickleness of life, sometimes hardships come and they are hard and we want to come alongside and support you in whatever that may be. Or perhaps some of us are like Pilate. We're sort of in that indifference zone. I'll just check it out, but I don't really have strong feelings either way about Jesus and that maybe he wants to reveal his glory to you. Or perhaps Barabbas. And you're feeling like everybody thinks I'm just a terrible person because of the sins of my life, and they'll never forgive me. Yes, we will, and God will. God invites you into that new life. But I want us to identify not with these anymore, but with Jesus, who has set me free from the things that hold me back. Whether it's religious resistance and stubbornness to biblical truth, indifference or agnosticism, to who Jesus is, or the crowd that is pushing me around and I don't like the way God is treating me so I rebel against him, or Barabbas, I'm too much of a sinner for God to forgive me. I want us to identify with Christ and let Christ become your Savior, your Lord, your forgiver, your friend, the one who will minister a transforming power unlike anything you've ever experienced before. Mark Whitaker experienced that. John and Julie Clark have experienced that. Uche, my Nigerian friend at Biola, read the word and was saved, experienced that. And we want you to experience it too. So let me pray. Father God, I thank you that you're a God who watches over us. And Lord, we go through challenges of life that are hard. Jesus Christ, it's just unimaginable on that Friday that we're coming up upon this coming week that he stood before these groups of people and they treated him so harshly and yet he died for them he died for the religious leaders he died for Pilate he died for Barabbas he died for the crowd that shouted crucify him God he died for me he died for all of us oh God may we respond with faith with repentance with a desire to know you better, 
to live for you regardless of the circumstances, that God, you want to do work in our lives as well. So thank you, and help us to follow along. In Jesus' name, amen.